I met David Nielsen through my mentor and great friend Mackenzie Rivers of Map Chocolate. David has his own podcast called Bean to Barstool, and it's all about craft beer and craft chocolate. These are truly two of my favorite things in the world. I love to daydream. Listening to David's podcast brings the same type of inspiration I try to put into my chocolate bars. I want people to take some time, slow down, and let their minds travel to the places where cacao is grown. When I listen to David speak of hops, malt, barley, and yeast, my senses get filled with the smells of the brewery or the first smell of a beer when you open the can or bottle. I oftentimes try to picture the setting of the brewery or the chocolate shop and imagine what it is like. I have listened to all of David's podcasts and am entertained with each episode. More than being entertained, I learn something new each time. David is an advanced Cicerone, which is the beer equivalent of a sommelier. I love learning from people who are willing to share their knowledge, and David is one of those people. With so many styles of beers and types of chocolate, it is very refreshing to have someone in the world who is willing to dive into all of this be open and honest with his thoughts and opinions, and help to spread the word of craft beer and craft chocolate to whoever will listen. David hosts beer events both in person and virtually, so make sure to check out his website, David Nilsen Beer, N-I-L-S-E-N Beer.com. You can also find him at David Nilsen Beer and at Bean De Barstool on Instagram. Also, make sure to check out his podcast, Bean De Barstool, and all of the streaming platforms. My favorite episode is number 30. Wink, wink. Enjoy this episode. Hi, David. How are you? I'm doing well, Tyler. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for joining me on my podcast this time. It's nice to have you here. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed your episode recommendation there. Uh, <laughs> it's one of my favorites. Um, so I always try to have the guests kind of describe the setting where they are to record the podcast. So can you just tell us you know, where you're at and describe the setting a little bit? Yeah, sure. I work from home, so I'm in my home office right now. It's also our guest room and our family room, but, you know, I'm the only one using it during the day. So I've got a west-facing window that gives me some nice filtered sunlight uh, to my back. And then I've got my grandfather's old wooden desk that I sit and work at and a candle burning beside me. So I'm in a pretty good headspace this morning. Oh, that's really nice. Well, I picked a good day, I guess. So (laughs) there you go. Um, so give us a little background on kind of your history with beer. Um, I figured that was probably the best place to start because that's been your primary focus. Um, so maybe you could kind of explain what, where it all started, um, and kind of where you're at and, and what you do in the industry. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I got into craft beer just as an enthusiast. Uh, about 15 years ago or so, in my early 20s, um, I was one of those weird people who actually didn't start drinking beer until they were of age. I had a kind of unusual religious upbringing that is uh, that I've long since left behind, and so alcohol was a no-no, and it, it took a while to 
get around to uh, discovering these drinks. So got into craft beer in my, in my 20s. It was just kind of a, you know, it was the drink that I enjoyed drinking for quite a while. It wasn't until about 10 years ago that I started to try to learn a little bit more about this, mostly just for myself. I'm the type of person who, when I get into a new interest, I want to learn everything I can about it. Uh, so I've started reading some books and watching some videos and just trying to tease apart all the complexity of, of beer. Uh, and then about five years ago, just a little over five years ago, it was time for me to move on from my uh, job at the time and didn't have something specifically in mind, didn't have another job lined up. And, and I've always done writing, so I decided that I would uh, give freelance writing in the, the food and drink sphere a shot. So I uh, completed my certified Cicerone certification at that point. Uh, just this last year, completed my advanced Cicerone certification uh, and started from the from the ground up writing full time. Uh, you know, just doing those no paid free oh, articles wow. to start out until you, you know, get some bylines and get going from there. And then at the same time, I was also leading some local beer events. And uh, so over the last five plus years, I've been building that out into a true full-time job. So I, I write uh, for all the major beer publications and do some other food and drink writing as well. Uh, and then because of COVID, I'm primarily doing virtual beer events right now. But prior to that, was doing a lot of in-person beer education events as well. Now, a lot of people, when I mention the word Cicerone, it's not a, it's not a familiar word. So can you describe what's involved with becoming a Cicerone? And then even once you describe the, the first level, maybe also explain what, what needs to be done to get the advanced designation? Sure. So the Cicerone Certification Program was founded about 15 years ago. Look, uh, this office is in Chicago, and it was created to basically be a uh, direct comparison to the Court of Master Sommeliers on the wine side. So there are four tiers of certification, just as there are on the wine side. Uh, the first level is a fairly simple test. It's called the uh, Cicerone Certified Beer Server. Uh, so that's mostly for service staff who just want to be able to give a little bit better recommendations. It's nothing too terribly in-depth. Above that is kind of the industry standard level. That's the certified Cicerone level. That's pretty involved. Uh, that's a uh, test that has to be taken in person. It's about a five-hour exam, um, written interview, um, uh, and tasting exam as well. Uh, and then above that is the advanced and the master level. The advanced level is uh, an all-day exam with a bunch of different components to it. And there's a, a very limited number of people who have passed that. I think I was like number 144. Or oh, something. wow. Uh, and then the master level is, you know, just what it sounds like. It's, it's the, uh, the very, very top. I think there's only 20 in the world right now. And I have not decided if I'm ever going to try to pursue that or not. I'm not sure if I'm masochistic enough for that. Wow. Yeah, I saw the um, the movie, what was it called? Psalm, I think, about mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the group of people that were going through. I mean, and it was just bonkers what yeah. they go through. Um, you know, I think I, a lot of times, because I, you know, I think mostly when I started the chocolate company and 
uh, realizing all the different flavors and the nuance. And, you know, I mean, I've obviously tasted, you know, beer to beer, different flavors and fruit notes, but never really paid a whole lot of attention. Now I find myself kind of trying to pick it out, but I could never imagine having the ability to pull out the the tastes and the flavors that people like yourself and sommeliers can do and, and pick regions and variety. It's just, I mean, I guess with enough time you figure it out, but it's just mind blowing to me. Yeah. It, we all pretty much have about the same, you know, taste and smell ability. Uh, it's just an issue of practice and learning what the different things are that you're tasting and smelling and getting that into some sort of organization system in your head. I think a lot of people, uh, think that they don't have a good sense of taste or good sense of smell. I don't have a good palate. That's something I hear all the time. Mm. And we pretty much all have about the same natural ability. It's just an issue of training and vocabulary and really being able to uh, identify uh, all the things that you're, you're smelling and tasting. Do you find that um, exposing yourself to lots of other flavors outside of beer in, in the other foods that you eat helps you kind of develop that palate? Because one thing that I've always found is when I'm looking at different chocolate bars from other makers and you see some of the flavor notes, and I, I often wonder, like some of the things people put down there, I'm like, did they really try like pickled orange rind? Or, I'm, you know, so do you do you find that that helps you or, or, or not in your process? Absolutely. Because, you know, if beer just tasted like beer, we wouldn't really need much of a vocabulary mm-hmm. for it. Most of the vocabulary we're using to describe this are things that aren't beer. So Mm -hmm. you need to eat widely and smell widely in order to do that. And one of the things that I like to revisit, I've talked about this on the podcast and given some, uh, some talks on this is that we need to always be looking at opportunities for expanding our sensory vocabulary, even if it's not a direct tasting experience. Mm -hmm. So when you take a walk in the forest, there's a lot of smells that you're, you're smelling. And they might very well come up in a sensory description for a beer or a chocolate or a wine or whatever else it might be. You know, forest floor and tree bark and different, different green planty smells and things like that. When you go to a garden center, you've got a hundred different types of flowers that you can smell. When you go to a market, there's all these different spices and herbs that you mm. might not be familiar with. And, you know, buy some of those, buy some fruits you've never had before. Doing all of those things and taking kind of intentional field trips to do that is a huge way to expand your vocabulary. Because like I said earlier, we can all basically detect uh, from a mechanical, physical sense, we can all detect about the same amount in terms of smell and flavor. The difference is vocabulary and being able to connect those two. So you might be able to smell what this other person is saying is, pickled orange rind but if you're not familiar with pickled orange rind that's not a vocabulary you'll have (laughs) you know so you have to be able to go outside of uh just the specific sector that you're working with to taste other types of drinks taste a lot of different foods and smell a lot of things you know just out and about even if it's not in a tasting environment yeah, it's very true. And we have that opportunity. I think we just overlook a lot of those things. I mean, even when I'm walking through 
you know, a grocery store, there's a lot of fruits that I oftentimes look at. I'm like, oh, that's a really crazy looking fruit, but I never actually pick it up to even just one to try it, but maybe something I should start doing. So that's a really good, really good point there. Um, now, as far as the beer making process, I mean, similar to chocolate, you know, a lot of people don't know what the process is to actually make chocolate. It's just something that shows up on a, on a shelf right. somewhere. Can you describe, you don't, you don't necessarily need to go into great detail, but describe the process of making beer and the different ingredients that go into it? Yeah, for sure. One of the things I love about both beer and chocolate is that I think they both suffer from that. People just think they show up and both of them, of course, are (laughs) agricultural products. Mm -hmm. Wine has done a great job of keeping in people's minds that this is agricultural. So I really like to emphasize that both of these are uh, agricultural products. So beer is really interesting because it's actually a number of different ingredients that have to go into it. Uh, I enjoy wine. Um, but wine is just one ingredient. And so you need to understand grapes and then the process that comes from that uh, for the actual winemaking process. Beer is a uh, collision of a bunch of different ingredients at once. So the, the foundational ingredients in beer are, of course, water, which is very important. It's not something that you're going to think about very often when you're drinking, but the specific water chemistry yeah, will affect the finished profile of the beer and a lot of beer styles developed in different places because of the groundwater chemistry uh, where they originated before we were able to modify that. Um, So water is, of course, the largest ingredient by volume in there. After that, the foundational ingredient is um, some sort of malted grain. Most of the time, that is malted barley. Uh, Pretty much any beer that you're going to get commercially is going to be made from malted barley unless it is gluten-free, and then it's going to be some other uh, gluten-free grain. Uh, And then some other grains will get used as well, wheat and rye and and oats and things like that. The malted grain, uh, the malting process is basically just preparing the grain for fermentation. There's a bunch of starches uh, inside that grain. Brewing yeast can only ferment basic sugars. So the malting process wakes up some enzymes that will convert those starches into sugars that can be fermented by the yeast. And then the malting process will also determine some of the color and flavor of the finished malt, depending on whether it's kilned or roasted and and what color it ends up and all that. Uh, So during the brewing process, the first step, you're going to mix that malted grain with warm water for about an hour or so. During that time, all those enzymes are going to convert those starches into sugar, and you're also going to extract color, flavor, aroma, and texture from the malt as well. And that liquid's going to get drained off. It's going to get boiled, uh, first of all, to kill off any microorganisms that came in on the malt. Uh, during the boil, the hops are going to be added, which is the third foundational ingredient. Hops are a flower that grows on a vertical uh, vine. And those hops contribute two primary things to the beer. The one is bitterness. Uh, they have a type of organic acid in them that is pretty bitter to the human tongue. Uh, The boiling process, though, will make that acid more water-soluble and also more perceptibly bitter. So you get much better utilization uh, when those are boiled. Uh, Beyond bitterness, they also add just a huge rainbow of aromas and flavors. You can get fruity or floral or spicy, herbal, uh, pine-like aromas. Just there's Over a 100 commercial varieties, and they all have different aroma and flavor characteristics to them. Uh, So boiling will allow those um, 
those acids to be extracted to get you the bitterness level that you want in the beer. Uh, and then you will also end up getting the essential oils that will give that aroma and flavor. Then also during that boiling process, you're going to coagulate some of the sticky proteins and things like that in the beer uh, so that you get a better texture at the end. After it's boiled, you're going to cool it down, send it into a fermenter, and then you're going to add your yeast. Uh, there's two primary species of yeast that get used to ferment beer. Saccharomyces cerevisiae ferments ales. Saccharomyces pastorianus ferments lagers. Uh, and those two uh, species of yeast work basically the same way, just at different temperatures with some minor differences. And they're going to convert all of that uh, sugar that the enzymes created into ethanol and carbon dioxide. So that's how we're going to get our alcoholic carbonated beverage. Nowadays, a lot of the carbonation is just going to be forced carbonated from a, a CO2 tank. Uh, but historically, that would have been a natural carbonation process from the yeast. And there are still some situations where that is the case. After that's done, when the, the yeast has finished fermenting, uh, which can take anywhere from a few days to a few weeks, depending on the specific beer, the beer is just going to condition at a cool temperature for several weeks to several months more to allow the flavors to kind of come together and uh, allow that yeast to settle out and, and just kind of kind of fix the finished flavor of the beer. And then it's ready to be packaged or served. Uh, there are, of course, additional ingredients that can be added in specialty beers. You can now add pretty much anything you want to uh, to different beers. So you can have fruits and slices and all kinds of different things, including cacao, uh, into different experimental beers. And there are a handful of beers that will also use some alternative microorganisms to create uh, some sour or, or funky flavors in uh, different beer styles. But that's the basic process for 99% of the beers out there. What is, uh, sort of in your opinion, what what do you think, and maybe this is a question that can't necessarily be answered, uh, but what is the most important ingredient in the process of making beer. I mean, hops seem to always be the ones that everybody knows about. Um, but do different, do different grains really have a bigger impact than hops or is it all kind of equal on that plane? Yeah. So one of the things that I really love about beer is that if you don't use one of those things, it's really not beer. Uh, and so you have to balance all of these different ingredients. And that's what leads to such overwhelming variety within beer. Like I said earlier, I, I like wine. Uh, I like bourbon. I, li I like different uh, beverages mm -hmm. like that. But I don't think anything has the variety and complexity that beer has because you have so many different um, axes on which to balance the flavor profile of a beer based on which of these dozens and dozens of malts you're using and which of these over a hundred hops you're using and which, which yeast you're using with which fermentation regimen and how you're handling your water chemistry and what else you're adding and all of that. Uh, it depends on the beer you want to make. You know, if you're making an IPA, those hops are real important. If you're making a Doppelbach, well, you're not really going to taste those hops much, but in either case, you got to have malt and hops for both mm. of them to get the finished flavor profile. So there's really none that you can uh, narrow out and say this is the most important. Hops are definitely sort of the sexiest ingredient mm -hmm. right now. Hops are what people really get uh, get a lot of buzz around because they have such uh, bright and exotic flavors without actually having to add any specific ingredient to 
to emulate that. So you can get the flavor of pineapple without adding pineapple. You know, mm. if you're adding a hop that can evoke that flavor and aroma. Uh, so hops definitely get a lot of buzz. They kind of steer the ship in a lot of American craft beer. But to say that they're the most important would be misguided because you have to have those other ingredients handled properly uh, in order to get your finished beer flavor profile. Now, are there certain beers that require like rye versus wheat or can you use either one in pretty much any type of beer? Because I know with bourbon, like, you know, use a rye versus a wheat and that creates, you know, more of like the burning sensation versus more of a sweet sensation. Does that same effect apply in beer making? Uh, you can definitely use those different grains for different effects, but I wouldn't say it's probably quite as profound as you're talking about with some of those different whiskeys. Mm-hmm. Um, the foundational grain we're looking at is malted barley, um, and that's going to be the foundation of, of the vast majority of beers. In, in fact, probably greater than 99% of the beer sold here in the U.S. is based on malted barley. Uh, even when you're looking at a beer that uses another grain, like a wheat beer or a rye beer, that's still mostly malted barley, and then they're using that grain uh, to supplement the malt bill. Wheat uh, has a higher protein content than barley does typically, and a lot of times it will be used unmalted, which will further uh, amplify the the um, uh, the sort of fluffy and uh, soft mouthfeel that those proteins uh, lend to the beer. So mm-hmm. if you're having something like a German Hefeweizen or a Belgian wit beer, those have this very soft, almost pillowy texture to them, even though they're not all that heavy. And that is coming largely from those uh, the, the wheat that's in there. Something like a rye uh, will similarly affect mouthfeel, but it's also going to lend a very slight uh, I hesitate to use the word spicy, though that's the word that's often used mm-hmm. because that's misleading, but sort of a, a more earthy, almost peppery uh, character, more of a, like an earthy grassiness to the beer. Um, oats can be used to affect mouthfeel as well. Oatmeal stouts use only a very, very small amount of oatmeal, maybe 5 or 10% mm-hmm. of the, the grain in there is actually oats. But those oats have a high uh, beta-glucan content, and they will lend almost a, an oily silkiness to the texture of the beer and a very, very mild um, uh, oatmeal or granola-type flavor, depending on the type of oat used. So those grains do definitely matter, but you're generally using them in a fairly small proportion relative to malted barley, with some exceptions. Uh, and they're mostly there to affect the mouthfeel of the beer more than the actual flavor profile. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that. Um, what is, if you, you know, when you're heading out to just grab a beer, what is typically your favorite to kind of sit down and enjoy what, what style? Sure. Uh, if I'm going to a brewery, I will tend to favor whatever I know that brewery is going to specialize okay. in. Cause I, you know, if that's what the, where the brewer's passion lies, I'm going to want to, uh, to try that particular beer. Um, part of what I do, you know, involves being able to appreciate and enjoy any beer style. So uh, any well-made style I'm going to be able to sit down with and, and appreciate. Uh, there are certainly pet styles that I will find myself returning to. Uh, I really, really enjoy a well-made Vienna lager, and there aren't a whole lot of them out there in the U.S. market. So mm. when I find a good Vienna lager, I will definitely uh, gravitate to those. I enjoy Belgian styles quite a bit. Uh, unfortunately, if there is one 
national tradition that I think a lot of American brewers struggle to do well. It is Belgian beers. Um, a lot of brewers will make one, but I don't think a lot of brewers uh, maybe have the that Belgian intuition for exactly what to do with mm-hmm. the unusual circumstances of, of a Belgian peer. Um, but, but, you know, the good ones, I definitely appreciate, uh, really, really enjoy a well-made chocolate beer, of course. So if I know that a brewer has worked with ethically sourced cacao, you know, they're not just slapping the word chocolate on their can and not telling me anything, but I know they've worked with a reputable cacao source, both from a, um, ethics and quality standpoint for that cacao, then I'm definitely going to uh, give that beer a try. Um, so, like I said, I can enjoy pretty much any uh, well-made beer, but there are certainly those pet styles that I like to seek out. Yeah, I found when I started um, kind of trying to do my research, which um, consisted of a little bit of reading, but mostly just trying dark beers made with chocolate. Uh, I did, I, I tried a lot and I did find that a lot of them were just so intense with, I, I don't know if it was how dark they got or the type of grains they used. Uh, but I mean, some of them were the balance to me from, from my like was way off. The one that I, that I did try um, during the research process, it was a, I think you would consider to stop. It was the Trogues cacao, Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't think of what the full name is. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it's got cacao in the name. Yes. Brand cacao. Yes, brand cacao. That one was absolutely outstanding. Um, yeah. And then, I, I, obviously, I, again, not being too much of a dark beer drinker, though, the one that um, Myers Creek did that we had the podcast episode about mm-hmm. that porter um, that seemed to be a pretty good balance for me as far as my knowledge base goes. Um, typically, being more of a, a, a wit beer or an IPA drinker, mainly myself. But again, not with a whole lot of knowledge, just figure out what it is that I like. So, sure. Now, what? How did the craft chocolate come into it? Because you've made that a big part of the um, your obviously your whole podcast, and you do a you must have to do a lot of research to seek out these combinations and pairs. So, how did that whole thing come about? Sure. So it came about because of beer uh, back goodness, probably close to four or five years ago now, uh, I was doing a monthly pairing series at a local restaurant bar, a different type of cuisine every month. uh, And then I would pair it with beer and and people could buy tickets and come to that. So we would do national cuisines, you know, beer and Scottish beer and Scottish food or, uh, you know, different things like that. Or we'd pick a particular type of food. So we do a cookie pairing or um, <laughs> like you know, that. pie pairing or you know, something like that. So we did a, a chocolate pairing. And I, uh, I honestly, I, I probably jumped into that before I was really um, up on chocolate enough to do it. But, you know, researched some, some good chocolates and um, from a sensory standpoint, was able to work out some good pairings, even though I didn't have a real good understanding of the chocolate side very well. Uh, ended up two uh, two people were really instrumental in helping me understand this better. I picked up Megan Giller's book, Bean to Bar Chocolate, um, and read through that. And then we have a chocolate uh, dealer in the Dayton area, London Co., who runs a shop called Peace on Fifth. Uh, which sells entirely slavery-free products from around the world to different arts and crafts, but a significant portion of that is bean-to-bar chocolate. So I went in there, and she has this 
just infectious enthusiasm. It's hard to get out of her shop in under 45 minutes because she's just going to start <laughs> opening bars and have you taste things and talk you through, you know, what you're tasting and all that. So uh, between reading that book and talking with London and then um, Megan and I actually, uh, I, I had the honor of speaking with Megan um, at an event that London was running here in Dayton. Uh, and so with doing all that, obviously chocolate was delicious. And so I was interested in it, but I also saw a lot of overlap between the craft chocolate and craft beer worlds, uh, both from a cultural standpoint and uh, from a finished product standpoint. Um, and uh, really, really was fascinated by the way I saw those two things lining up. And then when I started to discover collaborations between them, you know, breweries working with ethical cacao and, and chocolate makers partnering with breweries and things like that, I, I realized this was a niche that I definitely wanted to explore for myself and one that nobody was even looking at. You know, there was nobody in the beer world that I, I shouldn't say nobody, it didn't feel like there was anybody in the beer world who was paying any attention to this amazing sensory world that existed within craft chocolate. And so I just decided to bring those things together, both for my own uh, passion and, and as a professional niche as well. Yeah, I think the one the one thing about the chocolate world, and, and I think this is somewhat true for most food that we eat, is that we're, we're either reluctant or don't know the story to tell of it. Mm -hmm. And I think with, you know, craft chocolate, it, there's a, I mean, there's layers and layers of story to tell. And I, you know, I think also the same thing with craft beer, because, you know, when I listen, when you had Chad Meigs on from the Vineyard here, just outside of Syracuse, I mean, listening to him talk about just growing hops, you know, it's this beautiful artwork that he does and it's just you know it's just growing a plant but there are all of those stories to be told on both sides and i wish i don't really know what what the avenue is but i i wish there was more opportunity to be able to tell that and i think you do it very well on your podcast oh, thank you i think for both of these for both beer and chocolate we mentioned earlier that uh people just think of these as appearing on the shelf and they're, they're produced in a factory or or whatever it is i think um, for enthusiasts of one or the other, uh, you know, if you're a beer fan, for whatever reason, that awareness of beer doesn't always extend to a generosity toward another sector mm -hmm. like chocolate and vice versa. You know, you know that beer is this whole complex world with all this history and all this art and science and all of this behind it. Uh, and you know that a lot of people don't understand that. And so you, you know the education that has to happen, but you're so invested in that that you look at chocolate and it's still just something that sits on the grocery store shelf or vice versa from the chocolate world. And so uh, being able to kind of sit in both worlds and expose the beer world to chocolate and expose the chocolate world to beer and be like, Hey, you guys are friends. Like, I think you would get along really well. <laughs> uh, that's something I really, really enjoy. So David, in, in the chocolate that you eat, what are some of the things that you really look for that you enjoy in, in trying all the different chocolates? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoy in terms of the sort of the corollary between chocolate and beer is 
that they both have this divide between classic styles and interpretations and then more modern experimentation. So in the beer world, you have these old time-honored historical beer styles that are still, we, we try to brew the same way they were brewed 150 years ago with you know, German lagers and British ales and you know Belgian Trappist beers and all this stuff like that. And then you have beers with coffee and cacao and vanilla in them and uh, or different fruits and spices and different things like that. And in the chocolate side, you have the same thing, sort of. You have single origin bars that are just this pure presentation of the cacao of, of a particular origin. And those, I feel like, are kind of a, uh, an analogy from those classic beer styles. But then you also have inclusion bars that can have absolutely anything that the chocolate maker is able to put in them. So you made a bar aged on hops. And, uh, you know, Mackenzie, who you mentioned earlier from Map Chocolate, you know, she is just an alchemist of pulling together <laughs> just bizarre. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I actually, this morning, I had a piece of her bar that has uh, ramps in it, which is not something I would in a million years think would taste right in a chocolate, you know, a savory herbal flavor like that. So I enjoy on both sides of this that they both have that kind of division. So I will find that I will, in, in both the, the beer world and the chocolate world, I will sometimes be in a different mindset based on which one I'm wanting to sink into. And I feel like in the chocolate side, when I'm reaching for those single origin bars, I'm maybe in a little bit more of a uh, quiet, contemplated space where I'm really wanting to kind of travel in my mind and think about this origin. And um, I did an interview with um, Asana Forsland out of Sweden for the podcast yeah. back in the summer. And her, her entire thing is around the idea of traveling with chocolate, that she has this whole routine she goes through, um, kind of meditative tasting process when she's tasting different chocolates of trying to imagine the place she's going and uh, the, the origin of where that was grown and all of that. And then on the inclusion side, I, that's where I feel like I have this, just this exciting spontaneity of tasting with that. Um, so I, 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 it's sort of a non-answer, but I feel like my answer is very similar to what it was with beer. It really depends on what, what is the moment I'm in? What do, what do I feel like this maker really specializes in and does really, really well? Um, that'll be largely what I'm reaching for. I am, of course, very, very interested and curious about tasting bars that have incorporated beer or beer ingredients in some way. Um, so I'm always going to be excited about checking those out. Um, I feel like I still have more to learn on the single origin side. I have mm -hmm. more to learn everywhere. But on, when it comes to origins, I would really like to be able to develop my palate better to be able to understand um, the terroir of different areas understand uh, the house character of different chocolate makers when they're working with those origins, because it's been interesting to see that uh, even across different origins, different makers definitely have a, a particular house character of how they like to work with that. Mm -hmm. um, so I would like to expand my knowledge on that side. I find that on the pairing side, when I'm pairing with beer, uh, it is much more natural to pair with inclusion chocolates. You have more easy flavor bridges there for pairing over with beer. So it really depends a lot on the specific 
situation and what I'm looking for from from the chocolate. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I never thought about the inclusion aspect of it and the enhancement there if it's done the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you have you done much traveling f- with you know for beer tasting and and stuff like that? For beer, absolutely. I haven't really been able to do much for chocolate. Um, I feel like travel for chocolate means something very different. You're going to origin and right. I haven't had the opportunity to do that unless you're just wanting to check out somebody's chocolate shop somewhere. So, where, uh, But I have done quite a bit of beer travel. Where has been your favorite place that you've traveled uh, for beer? Oh, man. Uh, my wife and I have been to Belgium a couple times and that's been wonderful. Uh, Belgium is just a a wonderland of beer and history and tradition. Uh, so we've, we have a particular love for Bruges, which is a, a mid-sized city about goodness. I'm going to say 10 or 15 miles off of the North sea. Mm. Um, and it's, uh, this incredibly well-preserved medieval city. So the city center is, you know, there's, there's one beer bar that, uh, has a, you're drinking down in a cellar from the 13th century. Oh, wow. Um, you know, so it's this gorgeous, gorgeous, uh, city and so many great beer bars and some good breweries in there. So you can just, you walk all day and you wander into these little cafes and they've got a staggeringly good beer list, you know, and just in a little mm-hmm. corner cafe or something. So Belgium is probably our single favorite if there was only one place we could go back to, but, Every place has its own different culture. You know, we've enjoyed Iceland and uh, Montreal has an interesting little beer culture to it. And then a lot of places here in the U.S., of course. Where do you think the, for all these different places, and and I guess it kind of, I, the same thing, the, your answer to this probably could carry over to chocolate too, but why do you think that so many different areas around the world have developed such unique like you know, like German beers and Belgian beers, and you know, I I would say like U.S. IPAs, and even within the U.S., there's there's New England IPAs, there's West Coast IPAs. So w- where does that sort of start to develop? Is it just where ingredients that are grown, or is it local taste? How, how have you found that? So historically, there is a a really large matrix of influences that have determined why styles have developed in particular places. Some of that is ingredients and what's available. Some of it's groundwater and climate and things like that. Uh, some of it, though, is is political and economical and what tax laws, you know, incentivize particular methods of brewing. And sometimes the answer isn't always that sexy. You know, it, it's just, well, this was taxed this way or the church didn't allow this ingredient to be used 600 years ago or, you know. Whatever wow. it was that has really influenced where those styles developed originally, uh, within the last, we'll say, 150, 200 years, that has become, um, I would say, progressively more influenced by technological advancements in brewing science. Uh, the isolation of brewing yeast in the you know, mid-19th century, the uh, advent of artificial refrigeration, the ability to roast grains in a more efficient way. Mm. Um, all of that different stuff has had a, a big influence on the commercial development of different styles throughout the 19th and then into the 20th century. Nowadays, uh, it's largely tradition. You know, so if you're going to Belgium, 
most Belgians are drinking light lagers, like most Americans are. The, the, the beers that we would think of as traditional Belgian beers are a relatively small portion of the Belgian beer market, just like craft beer is still a small portion by volume of the American beer market. So it's really a cultural tradition that holds those on and tourism that is coming to, to drink those Belgian beers in their homeland. Um, and you start to see some, some American influence flowing back toward those European drinking cultures. So where American craft beer drew most of its foundational styles from Belgium and England and Germany and, uh, you know, Czech Republic and these different places in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, that has started to flow backwards. So you're starting to find Belgian beers made with citra hops and, oh, wow. um, you know, Belgian IPAs. And when we were in Iceland, you, there were hazy IPAs on tap at every single place we went. And, um, you know, you're, you're starting to get some of that counter influence, which I think is interesting as long as I don't go to a Belgian bar when I'm there and, you know, it's six different IPAs on tap. (laughs) I want to make sure that those traditions are preserved, but there's such a globalism to craft beer now that there really isn't, uh, there isn't much regional influence in the term, in the sense of, these beers are brewed here because this is what this specific area is is into, um, with the exception of some of the lager drinking cultures, Germany and the Czech Republic. They're they're very tradition bound in that sense, but uh, it's really more about preserving tradition and then a lot of uh, sharing of creativity between those traditions now. Huh, that's very interesting. Um, and then just one one final question. So in, in the chocolate that you've been, you know, tasting and whatnot, especially since you started the podcast, have you started to kind of develop a leaning towards a favorite origin or, you know, t- type of chocolate that you've been trying? Sure. Well, if, in terms of type, I am very partial to a well-made dark milk. Uh, from a texture standpoint, I love the texture of dark milk chocolate, um, you know, 60% somewhere around there, even higher. Uh, and I feel like when done well, that can really bring a nice balance to whatever the origin Mm. is that's being used. Um, uh, I feel sometimes like higher percentage single origin dark bars, they can be delicious and they can be really interesting, but I think sometimes the intensity can actually obscure some of the nuances mm-hmm. uh, of the origin. And when you dip that percentage just a bit and smooth out that texture just a little bit uh, with that, um, you know, with making the dark milk bar that it can really bring a really happy balance point. So when I find a good dark milk bar, and I'm definitely interested there. Um, in terms of origins, I still, like I said earlier, I still feel like I'm learning so much, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what my favorites are. Uh, I feel like uh, a lot of origins that I've found around the Caribbean, so Guatemala, um, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, uh, I have found those to be really, really interesting. Trinidad, uh, Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I've really, really enjoyed the fruitiness without mm. the explosive acidity yep. um, that you can get in some other origins. Um, so 
I, I'm still learning a lot, and I still, I, you know, I enjoy um, chocolates from from any origin that are well made. But I've really enjoyed those from around the Caribbean. I've also enjoyed a lot of the Pacific um, chocolates. So uh, Beldi's chocolate out of Vietnam, what Fire Tree is doing around the Pacific Rim. Uh, mm. I've really enjoyed those as well. And I feel like, and I might be um, exposing my ignorance here, but I feel like it's for a lot of the same reasons that I like some of those Caribbean bars. You get a complexity and a lot of different fruity um, characteristics without a um, without a, a harshness or a controlling character from the acidity. Yeah, well, yeah, for sure. I'm definitely drawn to the more fruity origins. Um, I like just the the jelly jam <laughs> sort of flavors. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting because Mackenzie, on the other hand, is not. You know, she's she likes the chocolate and some more of like the savory kind of flavors. And mm-hmm. it's interesting that you mentioned the dark milk because it's a it's a I'm going to say genre of bars that most people don't know and are not super willing to try. Um, and it's, it's one of those that's, that's not well known, but you're very right. It, it, it's not an, it's in my opinion, it's probably one of the harder bars to make because not all cacao beans and all origins make good milk chocolates. And so you can have some that can create a very sour flavor uh, in the milk chocolate, but f- playing around and trying to find the right origin to mix with that is, you know, hugely important. And it just depends on if the, you know, the chocolate maker wants to invest the time to try to figure that part out. So, yeah, sure. well, we'll wrap this up. I really appreciate all of your time. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And I love listening to all of the episodes. Um, going back to Halloween, I loved the series you did on, the witches and brewing and all of that. I found that to be very interesting. So I strongly encourage anybody listening to this to definitely go uh, after this, subscribe to David's podcast at Bean to Barstool. Um, but David, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on and, and thanks for listening to Bean Barstool as well. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ohm Travelers. A huge thank you to David for joining me. Make sure to find him at David Nilsson Beer, at Bean to Barstool on Instagram. His podcast, Bean to Barstool, on most or all of the streaming platforms. And please visit his website, www.davidnilsonbeer.com. Thank you to Soul Rising for allowing us the use of his song, The Journey, for our intro and outro. You can find him wherever you find music. Make sure also to visit my website, www.nostalgiachocolates.com for the show notes and also to pick up some chocolate, hot chocolate, or a sipping chocolate to eat or drink while listening to the next episode. Stay safe and find some time to slow down and enjoy the world around you.